Hey there, it's Christina here. Just a quick note about my new program. It's called the Eco Impact Academy. It's an amazing all-in-one program for eco-conscious women and men who want to go from feeling overwhelmed about the state of the world, fearful and sad about the future, to feeling confident that you have a roadmap and a real plan to get you to where you want to go so that you can live your values every day and influence others, giving back to the earth and feeling great about the impact you are making. And do all of this without burning yourself out. It really comes out of my own experiences of grief and despair that I was feeling about the environment and social issues. I just didn't feel like I was making a difference and like what I did mattered. So I drilled down into each issue, did the research, and created a system for myself that allowed me to know the steps to take and to do this work while still protecting my own well-being. And it really worked. And that is what I give you in the Eco Impact Academy. The clear steps to make the difference that you want to make, whether it be to know how to have a green and sustainable wardrobe, to know which upgrades to make in your home, or how to find ways to connect with nature more regularly, or feel like you are part of a movement for change. It's all in there. It's a step-by-step process that gets results and lets you live the life that you want, where you feel content because your actions align with your values and you are helping others live more sustainably and you're not burning yourself out by doing this. So if you would like more information about the Eco Impact Academy, head on over to my website. It is ChristinaHunterFlourishing.com. That's Christina with a K and book a call with me. Remember, there's a founding member offer that only lasts until November 15th. I would love to chat with you and see if you are a good fit. Now, Let's get into our episode. Welcome, my flourishing friends. In this episode, we get into social enterprises with my guest, Sean Loney. He has started numerous social enterprises that were born out of his desire to get more positive outcomes through NGO work, but in ways that relied on the market not always on government and charitable grants. It's an incredibly hopeful model that is really worth learning about. Let's dive in. I'm Christina Hunter, and you are listening to the Live Well Green podcast, all about sustainable well-being and green living. We explore how to do what is good for the planet and for ourselves in order to truly flourish. Welcome. 
Today, I have Sean Loney here to talk about social enterprises. Sean is a social enterprise developer, and he's helped to start up numerous social enterprises here in Manitoba. And in 2014, he was elected as a fellow of Ashoka, which supports the world's leading social entrepreneurs. He's also written numerous books, including An Army of Problem Solvers, Reconciliation and the Solutions Economy. And even more recently, he has announced that he's running for mayor here in Winnipeg in the upcoming election in 2022. Welcome, Sean. Thank you so much for joining me. Thanks, Christina. It's uh, nice to see you again. And I've been looking forward to chatting and reconnecting around social enterprises. It's uh, wonderful to connect today. I really appreciate you giving us the time to chat a little bit about what you've been spending your time and energy on for the you know last, uh, I don't know, decade or so of your life here in Winnipeg, you're really a go-to person for social enterprises. So why don't we just start with that? Can you describe for us what is a social enterprise? Sure, yeah. I originally got going in 2006, but interestingly, I didn't know what a social enterprise was. And it's a similar experience for people around the world. We're just realizing that the existing approach of government's funding nonprofits isn't getting us the scale that we need to really transform. And in the end, entrepreneurial skills and and ways of looking at the world, I think, are what are going to get us out of the various messes that we're in, whether it's climate change, poverty, and so on. So people have different definitions for social enterprise. Mine's pretty simple. It's just simply a nonprofit that is using market tools to expand its mandate. So does it have to be a nonprofit? No, I think it's helpful to be a nonprofit and I can explain why. I think it's more entrepreneurial to be a nonprofit, which is curious, but the the market tools really come around to getting into the mainstream economy, which is where the vast majority of money is spent. And if we want to scale, it's good to get out of the up off the kids table and to step into the value of what it is that we're able to offer. Oh, I love that idea of getting up off of the kids table because so often the nonprofit realm and those doing social good and social work feel that they're always begging for money and they're doing they're sidelined, but you're talking about using these market tools in order to do the work that you want to do, whether that be as through a nonprofit mechanism or through the for-profit mechanism as well. That's really exciting. I'm really thrilled by the folks who are into this. And so you said you got going in 2006 and didn't even sort of realize that that's what it was called at that time. But um, I know you through two of your social enterprises, the first one called Build and the other one, Aki Energy. Can we start with those as examples of what this looks like in in real life? Sure. I think the the build story is kind of also interesting to see uh, the evolution in our thinking, especially here in Winnipeg. And keeping in mind, some of your listeners might be interested to know, soon almost 20% of Winnipegers will be Indigenous. So Winnipeg is an exceptional place to be embedded in 
a philosophy where solutions are valued. Right now, in Western civilization, solutions are not valued. And there's a big evolving understanding of how nonprofits raise money. So with Build, we started as a nonprofit and in 2006. And the idea was we're going to insulate low-income housing and we're going to hire people from these houses that didn't have access to the labor market. So we have this dual benefit of reducing energy poverty and climate change, carbon emissions along with it, but also reducing uh, the number of people who who we focused on were people that had criminal records. So reducing in incarceration and poverty along with it. And uh, what happened was electric. The people were lined up for blocks looking for work. And I found that kind of exciting. It was surprising to me. I used to think that you know, because there were people who weren't working and there were lots of jobs to do that the you know people obviously didn't want to work <laughs> why was i wrong about that holy smokes wow. so people lined up for blocks and um we went to government with an exciting proposition it's like give us more funding and we'll hire more of these folks and you'll save enormous amounts of money far more than the funding would provide and we were sure they were going to give us a yes and we were told what nonprofits are told on a daily basis and i'll translate for you and your listeners government said to us, we can't afford to save money. And so we're frustrated with that. And we're driving by a public housing complex, uh, Manitoba Housing. And we saw that they had hired a contractor to put on uh, siding and, and a building. And I asked my coworker, Lucas Stewart, and we still work together. And he remembers this conversation as well. I asked him, why is Manitoba Housing hiring that contractor and not hiring us? And the car kind of went quiet and he said, well, it's because they're a contractor and we're a government funded nonprofit. Okay. So the car was kind of quiet. My turn to respond. And the question was obvious. Well, how the hell do we become a contractor? Because clearly that's where the money is. (laughs) And um, he had a trades background. So he said, well, I don't know. I guess we just tell Manitoba Housing that we're a contractor now. So we did. And Manitoba Housing loved it. Because that's where most of the money is. It's in in money governments are using to procure goods and services, not in the funding spiel. So that day was pivotal in my life because it's the day, first of all, build the nonprofit became a social enterprise, even though I'd never heard of the damn thing before. <laughs> and it also is the day that we turned government from a funder into a customer. Yeah. It's the decolonizing of the relationship between government and nonprofits. And we can unpack that a bit, but those those things go go together. And now our group of social enterprises in Manitoba does about six million dollars a year business with Manitoba housing. So it enabled us to scale. Wow. This is so interesting. I mean, Obviously, you're you're trying to do this work, hiring people who are, as you said, having difficulty accessing the labor market in order to do work that is, you know, helping protect people who live in low-income housing against high energy bills by insulating their homes and making their lives easier and better. And it's it's better for the government and it's better for the people living in that housing. And it does this great work of providing employment. 
and you got so far, you know, you got started as a nonprofit looking for funding from the government. And then you're surprised when the government doesn't just say, oh yeah, sure, we'll, we'll give you more funding so you can do more of this great work because it will pay dividends. Their model didn't allow that. And yet they're paying contractors to do this work that you wanted to do. So essentially you turned yourself in this organization build into the type of business that can do the work. It becomes a social enterprise then. And so that's really interesting. I'm just really taken by this idea of using this as a tool to decolonize the relationship when we're talking about a high number, a very extremely high portion of Indigenous people that are incarcerated and then subsequently have difficulty accessing the labor market and getting into a lot of the programs and services that are there and and finding work and so on. And here we can switch it, receiving social benefits to providing services and the government being the client. So this is a really empowering statement, I think, and a really interesting way of looking at at the bigger picture here. Was that obvious, you know, early on, or did that evolve only as as you started to get into this work? Yeah, I don't even know if evolve is it just kind of hit us like a ton of bricks. Yeah, we're in the wrong lineup. We're in the funding lineup, and we need to be in the delivering outcomes lineup because governments don't value what they fund. Funding is about compliance. Mm. You could be saving government enormous amounts of money. It doesn't mean they're going to give you more funding. Often it means they'll give you less. And funding is a model of scarcity. So, but governments do value what they buy. And they buy a lot of stuff. $50 billion worth of goods and services a year in Canada alone. And so we're just, you know, shifting. and into the game where the where the econ- economic action is happening and we're able to say to government well you buy a lot of goods and services now so we would like to deliver those goods and services to you as a contractor but we're going to give you these additional benefits which is a reduction in the enormous costs that you are having you're burdened with because people who are struggling interact with governments at very expensive levels. Mm -hmm. And so over time, we moved from just selling goods and services. Now we're able to app, we've developed a a tool called outcomes purchasing, where we're able to sell to governments workload reduction. And uh, so you mentioned that I had written an army of problem solvers, which is a really, I think, a good tool to see the power of social enterprises. My latest book is called The Beautiful Bailout, and it is about how uh, nonprofits can sell to governments the value of the very lucrative social outcomes that we're delivering, which is essentially workload reduction. And uh, yeah, we're finding governments really like it. And uh, so it, it's, it's, it's exciting. It's all focused around turning government from a funder into a customer. Wow. Okay. Yes. I'm, I apologize for not mentioning your most recent book. Uh, it's quite okay. Bailout. It, it's, it's an exciting concept though. When mm-hmm. we think about bailouts, we think about it going to large corporations, but mm-hmm. the thought that we can shift this into 
social enterprises taking on the government workload, making government more efficient and not needing to do some of the social services essentially in in the sense that it it gets done by by the um social enterprise in some ways and that and maybe more efficiently do you want to just tell us about the aki energy model and and what that looks like sure yeah so uh, just to f- finish up i realized you asked a good question about build is that build has lowered utility bills in 10,000 low income households in Manitoba, we and, and do a lot of work for Manitoba housing, but that model is also going in six other Canadian cities now and connecting people who most need the work with the work that most needs to be done. And I think that's our defining issue right now uh, as a society. Uh, Aki Energy is like BUILD, but it works on First Nations. So BUILD sort of doing more insulating and water retrofits, Aki Energy installing ground source heat pumps, or some people might have uh, call it geothermal. It's more accurately ground source heat pumps on First Nations in Manitoba. And we have installed now about 14 or $15 million worth of ground source heat pumps on four different First Nations in Manitoba. And it's all 100% labor. And we've been able to do that, uh, Indigenous labor, and we've been able to do that without any government funding. Uh, engaging government differently. I'm not suggesting letting government off the hook. It's just moving from a funding world to an outcomes world to raise the revenue. We need to do the things that make sense. That's exciting. This is uh, lovely. I am a big fan of ground source heat pumps slash geothermal. I've I've got it, you know, in my home, and it's such a wonderful solution for all sorts of uh, climate issues. Here in Manitoba, we have high heating requirements. And in you know smaller amounts, we do have some cooling needs as well, especially yeah. in the face of climate change, we will have more of that. And to be able to provide energy efficient and uh, low carbon ways to heat homes in remote First Nations communities is very exciting. So we can have better heated homes. And now we also have a company that has highly trained workers who is able to install these in these remote locations that's doing all kinds of, of great work. That's that's really exciting. Yeah, so it, it's partly like I, I, the remote part isn't even all that important. Uh, we also have a ground source heat pump in our house here in the middle of Winnipeg, and it works well. But at the same time, I always caution people because people think that the solution is technological. Ground source heat pumps are the, are uh, we need more ground source heat pumps. I caution people against thinking that, or we need more solar. We need to move the money differently is what we need to do. The, and that's why the beautiful bailout is about you know, nonprofits and, and the green economic sector really stepping into their power. And governments have to worry less about the technology and more about the outcomes. Right now, just in in my home city of Winnipeg, we hook up three, four thousand new doors a year to the natural gas system. So the 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 decisions by the systems are being made in favor of an old paradigm. Whereas the ground source heat pumps are the exception to the rule. So if I'm building a new house, just for example, the natural gas is just going to come to my house without any questions asked. Right. Whereas yeah. if I want a ground source heat pump, it's a big 
extra problem. It's probably an extra 25,000 bucks that I have to come up with. And the developers are going to be cranky because, you know, they hadn't anticipated that. So we have to switch these things around. And it's like, well, if you really want natural gas, here's three feet of forms to fill out and you'll need to pay an extra 30,000 bucks. But your house will be hooked up to ground source heat pumps unless you, you know, have some kind of objection to that. And that it be done on a utility basis. So you're paying for the capital over a long period of time rather than all up front. And that's sort of the model that Aki Energy uses is Manitoba Hydro supplies the upfront financing and residents of First Nations, when they get their hydro bills, their electrical bills, there's an extra charge on there that hydro collects until they get all their money back. But the bills of energy usage falls dramatically. So the net bills are actually lower. And if you look at $15 $15 million worth of ground source heat pumps. I mean, if we had gone to government and said, we're looking for $15 million to install ground source heat pumps, they'll be down their hands and he's laughing because they don't have it. Not that they're bad people. They just, funding is just this little child sand pail full of, you know, dollar bills. And we've kind of gotten out of that and into the game of, well, you're paying utility bills anyway. So why don't you pay a utility bill that's net lower than the one you're paying now? And that also creates employment on First Nations where it's needed the most. So I think it's very instructive, both Build and Aki Energy. Those are two good examples to see how business tools, nonprofits can use business tools to achieve the impact that we really want. I'm so excited about this because it seems like, uh, especially with this Aki Energy and the the different funding model, that you've been able to create almost systemic change in a roundabout way by you know not uh, attacking the system head on, but saying here's a viable solution and we've got a partner who's going to help us make it happen. And all of a sudden, we've turned it into a system where the more energy efficient, climate friendly, and socially responsible solution is the cheaper alternative. And all of a sudden, it's not the more difficult, the more expensive alternative, which is often one of the challenges, I think, of sustainability, is that it it's difficult. There's loads of paperwork. It's it's hard to get at and, and so on. And here it is in a way that made it the easier alternative. I think that's a lovely example. And the system end of it, it's a recognition that you can fill in the blank here with poverty or climate change. I think that's really important because the realization I've had over the years is that poverty, and you could say the same about climate change, but poverty is not about poor people. It's about the failure of the systems that they're interacting with. And we need to change the systems. So it's important, I think, to encourage people to make better choices. And I like your focus of your podcast in that regard. We also need to get governments to make better choices. And so the example I used earlier about the city of Winnipeg, you know, hooking up three to 4,000 new doors to natural gas on an annual basis. We just have to stop doing things like that's not intentional, but we're doing all these things that are hurting ourselves and um, not just climate change wise, but economically, you know, at the same time, you know, there's two to 3,000 young people leave 
my own home city on an annual basis for careers elsewhere. Well, no wonder. So the green jobs, wherever we are in the world, I think is is really an important angle. And I'm sure like like me, you're probably a fan of Jane Jacobs. Absolutely. And yeah. And so I, you know, I was reading a lot about her maybe 10, 12 years ago. And then I read something that really bothered me. She said that poverty has no causes. And I thought, oh, Jane, like that's wrong. Like everything we've ever learned about poverty is it has causes. We talk about the root causes of poverty. And she said, no, cold has no causes. It's the absence of heat and darkness is the absence of light. And poverty is nothing more than the absence of prosperity. And so I think that's the flip that we're looking for here is if we want to do something about poverty, we have to focus on prosperity. And similarly, I think if we want to do uh, really get going on reducing carbon in the atmosphere, then we've got to focus on the problem solvers and creating markets for solutions. And we've got to get out of the scarcity funding game and into the uh, where the where the money's being spent in, in the economic cycle and approach people and make it a no-brainer. You know, why in the world would you want to hook up your new house to natural gas when for no extra money up front, you could do a ground source heat pump or an air-to-air heat pump or whatever your solution is? That's what we need to do is to make the right choice the easy one. That's so exciting. I, I am so enamored by the social enterprise model. Because when we talk about sustainable development, you know, typically we've approached it, you know, first off, we were talking about the three pillars of sustainable development. We talked about the social aspect and the financial aspect and the ecological and where those all come together. Then we have sustainable development. And then we expanded that definition quite a bit to include, you know, cultural and political and, you know, education and all these other aspects now with the the new millennial development goals. But nonetheless, that original idea had the overlapping of the social, the financial and the ecological. And Mm -hmm. many problems that I see attempting to be solved are looking at one or maybe two of those aspects. Hmm. Uh, very rarely we get to three, but with your these social enterprises that you have been co-founding, Build, Aki Energy, I really see that all three are being addressed. We have the ability to get at some of the ecological issues when mm-hmm. we're insulating housing, right? And we get at some of the social aspects when we're employing people who are underemployed. And we're getting at some of the financial aspects of the high cost of paying your heating bills when you're trapped in a low income scenario. So how do we get to this? And where we also have, and then the, the government benefit also of having lower costs. So how is it that you're able to put these together? Can you give us some insight into what you look for to get at all three of these aspects of sustainability in the projects that you find uh, interesting? Yeah, so I think that the green and the social, they can reinforce each other. When we co-founded BUILD, we were doing work that the private sector wasn't even doing. Like we approached Mantle Housing and said, we'd like to insulate 
But so you can actually use one to enhance the other. So we didn't have any private sector competitors in the beginning. So that made things a little bit easier. And so it was good entry, entry level work. I mean, insulating is fairly repetitive, but still things that people can feel, feel pride in and led people into a careers of carpentry or, or plumbing, for example, because we replaced a lot of uh, high flow toilets as well. But I think the missing piece in many ways is the financial and in the business world, the relationships are about outcomes. And um, as I'd said earlier, it's just really important that solution providers know that what we're offering governments need. And in the end, the work that nonprofits do, this is really important. The main financial beneficiary is government, period. So when we solely focus on funding, we're actually giving our outcomes to government for nothing or for very little. And so how do you build a business or an outcome that's actually scalable if your main financial outcome is a gift? So, So the game then becomes, well, how do we get governments to value these outcomes? And so the beautiful bailout moves into this world, which is looking at, for example, homelessness. And for a long time, nonprofits have said, well, uh, supportive housing is cheaper than paying to respond to these perpetual crises all the time. And in fact, in, in my home city of Winnipeg, and this is true of many cities around the world, almost half of the spending is now on emergency services, which means less money for road repair and less money for climate change or greening parks, all the things that that people love. But if we go to government and we talk about we need money for supportive housing, I mean, they've made it pretty clear they're not in that game. So now we've gone and say, well, we want to talk to you about what supportive housing does. And will you pay us to reduce police dispatches? And the police are saying, yes, we're very interested in that because we're struggling because we arrest and rearrest the same people over and over again. Then we go to the um, uh, ambulance folks and they say, yes, we're very interested in paying for reduction in ambulance dispatches because we are giving pe- same people rides over and over again. And then you go to the health system and the emergency ward and the psych beds and into the justice system where there's a court cases and the nights in jail. And so we're able to take these entrepreneurial thinking that was developed sort of at build, at least in my mind, and say, well, we can sell goods and services, but we can also sell a reduction in the workload that all of these different systems are encountering. And so that is really an exciting concept, I think, and one to which all people can can be excited about, whether you're a fiscal conservative and you know worried about the size of government or whether you're you know really an environmentalist and in the state of the environment's on your heart or whether you're concerned about the social conditions that huge swaths of society are struggling with all three as you say are embedded in the, in these solutions if but we've got to start focusing on outcomes and realizing that nonprofits are offering governments what governments desperately need but they can't respond if we're all we're asking for is funding. But they can respond if we 
start to talk to them, not about insulating, but about what insulating does. So not about supportive housing, but what supportive housing does. Do you see the difference? Yeah. And it becomes more of an outcomes relationship. And that's something governments understand. They buy goods and services all the time. And hey, we got a service for you. It's called reduced police dispatches. Boom. Police are interested in that. It makes sense on so many levels when we approach it this way. I love this idea because we really can, and I truly believe that these things that we're talking about in terms of social good and environmental policy and so on, they cross all political lines because truly this is about society. This is about Mm -hmm. living in a society that works and finding a way to get us there that makes sense on a variety of levels is is really beautiful and that that model that you've been working on honing is mm-hmm. is really exciting i often think about sustainability as being inherently about the future you know that original definition of sustainable development talked about meeting the needs of the present without compromising the ability of future generations to meet their needs but you know we certainly are not meeting the needs of the present even never mind protecting the future but i i'm excited about this model of social enterprise as a possibility for the future what are your thoughts in terms of how this might step into a role into allowing us to get to the kind of future that we are looking for? One where we are seeing more social justice and equity and this alleviation of poverty through, you know, freeing up abundance for those who are are needing it in in whatever way it might be through social connections and through obviously, you know, just physical needs being fulfilled, but all of the ways in which we have poverty in our world and mm-hmm. seeing this as a mechanism to address it. What are your thoughts in terms of the role of a social enterprise in this type of future? Well, it's obviously very exciting. Uh, Some countries are doing better than others. Five out of eight of my great grandparents are from Scotland. And, you know, we're the we are the inventors of the residential school system. I mean, the English did it to the Scots. So when the Scots came to Canada, we decided to do it to Indigenous people multiplied probably a few times over. You know, we invented haggis. You've never heard anybody say, let's go eat Scottish tonight, right? It just doesn't happen. And we invented the bagpipes. But, you know, I'm pretty proud of my Scottish ancestors uh, or country country folk because they're leaders in social enterprise. There's 5,600 of them in Scotland. And it's really because governments are wanting to shift from managing problems to solving them. And they're beginning to embed into their procurement systems value for reducing their their workload across these multiple systems. And what's really cool is that these 5,600 social enterprises, and there's a, there's a net new uh, one every day. Like I think they're increasing by net to 200 to 250 a year. But um, most of those social enterprises hire people with barriers to employment. So that's pretty cool. The vast majority of them are led by women. I think, which is neat. And uh, the percentage of payment to the CEO are, you know, a fraction, one one hundredth of what CEOs of big companies make. So I think that 
moving in the direction of social enterprises I mean, in Canada or elsewhere. I know your listeners are from all over. Mm-hmm. Um, we have a problem with gender inequality. We have problems with income inequality. And we have huge swaths of society that don't have access to the labor market. And I think social enterprises can be an answer to all, a part of an answer to all three of those things. But what it comes down to is a relationship that governments have with society. And they need to be moving from managing these expensive social and environmental problems and creating markets for solutions. And that is what is really going to change society. And I think governments are struggling, like they're struggling with trying to keep up with uh, court appearances, with incarceration rates. And just let's look at diabetes here for a minute. In Canada, four out of five First Nations children will have type 2 diabetes. And the provincial government, they look at their health budgets and say, oh, my God, like we're really struggling with our health care expenditures. Let's let's close some emergency wards. So they think the problem is governments being need to be more efficient. And I don't think that's, uh, you mean, you, we can talk about that, but the bigger opportunity is governments being more effective. Who's going to solve the problem of diabetes on First Nations? It's going to be nonprofits and social enterprises and the community, community values embedded in those uh, ventures that are going to get people active and decolonizing the food systems again to value more local food. And, and healthy food. And uh, I'm excited about that. And governments don't have to spend more money to achieve these outcomes. They actually have to spend less. And that is very confusing for solution providers because for decades, we've been arguing with government to just, just fund us, just pay us more. And what does government say? We can't afford to save money. That's so exciting that we could actually get better outcomes if our government is looking to be effective, as you mentioned. And that's such a change in thought process in terms of not just being more efficient. And there's Mm -hmm. an end to what you can do with efficiencies, right? And we all know it and we felt it, you know, as governments try to impose more and more efficiencies. But effectiveness, I don't think there is, you know, we're not, we're certainly not running up against those limits anytime soon. This is exciting because it feels quite limitless in terms of the possibilities. We talked about build, we talked about Aki Energy, and we've also started a social enterprise called Aki Foods since we're talking about diabetes. And so we're looking at a, an approach in the four Ojikri nations in northeastern Manitoba uh, to take a cohort of a thousand people and that the offer to government is, why don't you pay us? a small portion of the benefits that would come from a reduction in blood sugar levels. And if we don't reduce blood sugar levels, you don't pay. But if we do reduce blood sugar levels, you pay. And you would pay out of the savings. So we're not asking government to spend more. We're actually asking them to spend less, but to shift their future spending from dialysis beds and treatment of people who are dealing with diabetes and instead uh, bring that into the present to pay uh, social enterprises, nonprofits to work with the cohort to reduce their blood sugar levels, which uh, so we're, we're very excited about that and turning government from a funder into a customer. 
keeping in mind that funding is it's great for many things. Trying something new, for example, it's just not a good tool for scaling solutions. And that's what we need now. We know what the solutions are. Funding has done a great job of showing society what works. We just need to scale now. But because funding is really about compliance, it's not about outcomes. When businesses engage with government, it's an outcomes relationship. Let's say a government wants a bridge built. So they'll engage a contractor to build the bridge. The bridge gets built. And then the contractor gets paid after the fact. And the value, the outcome is valued. But with funding, uh, the money comes up front. You got to agree in a budget. Uh, the nonprofit has to show government all of its receipts. There can't be any money left over afterwards. Yeah. There's no yeah. flexibility built in where when you're partway through an approach is like, wow, we should should be doing it this way it would be more effective. You'd have to go back to government and get approval on changing it. And if you saved government a bunch of money, it doesn't mean that you, you know, you're going to get more. So we need an outcomes oriented relationship with solution providers. And I think that's the concept that'll change the world. And it's one that governments actually like. And I think that's exciting too. This is uh, really interesting. You're, you gave me a little bit of your background in history, and I know you've, you've worked for government. You've worked as a senior civil servant, and uh, you've done all kinds of and policy a- analysts early on and that type of work. And, um, and then you got into um, the social entrepreneurship quite mm-hmm. accidentally, it seems like. But mm-hmm. what, what was it that really made you want to do something different? I'd be interested to know where, how you got to that. Yeah, good question. So for me, I think I embarked on a journey to figure out my privilege. And I'm just becoming more and more aware that there's a a sports coach in the United States, Barry Schweitzer. And he said that some of us were born on third base and think we hit a triple. And I was born on third base and life has been pretty easy for me compared to what other folks have to do just to get around the bases, get on base even. And here I have this huge head start. Um, You know, my my parents were both working. My dad was a business, owned a grocery store. So my first job was in the grocery store. You know, I spoke the dominant language. I had access to university, lots of, you know, supports and many different ways built in. But while there's a huge segment of Canadian population, that is not their experience. So at my family grocery store, I now looking back on that, the biggest block of customers there have been Ojibwe from the Rainy River First Nations. So any thinking person has to understand that my privilege is directly connected to the poverty of others. And so I'm realizing you can't have one without the other. I think my lifelong journey just to figure out my privilege has led me to also trying to understand, trying to understand. I'm not suggesting that I do, but learning every day more about the conditions that uh, others are living in that make it much more difficult for them to succeed. And, and I just think it's only fair that people have an equal, an equal chance. And that means, I think, in some ways, treating people differently. So my kids could not get a job at BUILD. The BUILD is really 
set up to hire people who don't have access to labor market. I mean, my kids have all kinds of opportunities to get into the labor market. Uh, same thing with Aki Energy. Uh, it's installing ground source heat pumps, for example, to Pegasus First Nation. Well, you got to be a member of the Pegasus First Nation in order to be on the, the Aki Energy's payroll for the work that's being done there. And um, that's uh, really, you know, part of understanding how privilege and poverty are connected. So I, I think that's that's my main motivation. You know, I, I grew up in Treaty 3. I live in Treaty 1. I feel connected to both. And I feel like being a good treaty person is understanding the values that were embedded in those negotiations, which was essentially we want what's best for each other. And if I live a life of wanting what's best for just myself, I think I'm missing out on an opportunity and a life of richness. Oh, wow. That's a, an incredible realization to to be on this journey of figuring out your privilege as as I am as well. You know, when we think about it, uh, it's it, it would be easy, of course, to just think about what's best for us as individuals, but then we we miss the bigger picture because really we're we're not well if society isn't as a whole you know doing well and the more inequities around us they they affect us on some level and um this is a a really lovely way that you've you've put it and it's been a really wonderful wonderful conversation Sean i really deeply appreciate it before we go i would just love to hear if you have any highlights of uh, this work that come to mind that you wanted to share with our listeners in terms of moments that have been meaningful and have made you think that you're on the right track? Yeah, I think for me, sitting in a circle of elders, which, you know, I've, I've done many times, and then just something that does not come natural to me is just shutting up and listening. And the wisdom that's embedded in how they understand the world is, and it's not just, oh, isn't that nice? It's really practical. i give you an example. In the beautiful bailout, I start the book out with, uh, I got access to a diary of an Indian agent from 1905. The guy's name's William Graham. He's in the Capel Valley in Southern Saskatchewan. And, and he's standing in the yard of his house and he sees this moose hunter going out okay fair enough and the end of the day the moose hunter comes back and he tells the indian agent i, I shot a moose he's like okay well where is it and he says oh it's in the bush i just have to you know tell some women in the community that i that i shot it so, well why would you do that and the next thing you know is he sees these 15 women going out to the moose and they take the hide off they cut it into 15 pieces and they bring it back to the community to share. And the Indian agent, uh, William Graham, writes in his diary these two words, which I think are essential. How peculiar. <laughs> so, you know, they're trying to embed this Western philosophy through residential schools. And, you know, I've written about how governments are working equally hard to take the Indian out of the economy. You know, the residential schools taking the Indian out of the person, but they were also taking the Indian out of the economy in all kinds of different ways that are very were very constraining and are constraining. They're still doing it. But what a mess that 
that was created. Now, the question then becomes, well, the philosophy of the Moose Hunter, the solution is valued. So how do we embed that philosophy into present day in 2021? And the solutions must be valued. That's the wisdom of the elders. I think that's what decolonizing public policy is largely about, as how I understand it. I mean, there may be other elements and you're coming at things in different ways. But from 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 my standpoint, if the solutions are valued, uh, you know, if the moose hunter didn't tell the community that he shot the moose and it was found out, he's in big trouble. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> big trouble. So, you know, how do we embed? And, and I think as social enterprises are the 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 vehicle by which that's done and. We say to government, we have what you need, and uh, we would like you to pay a portion of the savings that are going to be generated by us implementing these solutions. And uh, it's a simple procurement model, and we can sell to governments goods and services that they're already buying, such as the case with Built is how we started our conversation out. Uh, Manitoba Housing is buying insulating, water retrofits, apartment turnovers, drywalling, painting, all of those things that they would normally be buying but they're getting an additional benefit reduction in incarceration and poverty and so on. And we can also sell to governments a reduction in police dispatches, a reduction in court appearances, uh, just by embedding love, kindness, and compassion into our decision-making. And it turns out it's practical and taxpayers like it as well. I love that embedding love and kindness into our decision-making. That's beautiful. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And thank goodness that, you know, I think in the old paradigm, those things, we thought they were expensive right. and they're, they're nice to have. And now we're realizing that, wow, like they actually generate reductions in costs for taxpayers. So, wow. Like, and that's the, I mean, this is going to take off. Uh, Mother Earth has been doing a lot of work behind the scenes and there's some very transformational paradigm shifting that is it's already happening. It can't be stopped. I've seen it in my career. Uh, there's no what what's happening now in the social enterprise sector. I couldn't have five years ago. I wouldn't have been able to say that it was happening, but it's happening and you can see it. You can hear it coming. It's a train coming down the tracks. It's and it's very exciting. That is so exciting. Maybe just as we leave here, can you give us an idea of what, what somebody who's interested in this can do on a personal level? If it's uh, somebody who's listening, who's socially minded and eco-friendly, what, what is the average person's role in all of this? If, if they're not you know, going out and starting their own social enterprise, how do they play a role in, in this type of future? Yeah. So, Christina, if people want to go to our website, encompass.coop and encompass is uh, a nonprofit as well. There's, there's a lot of free resources there, including a, a movie called broke the business of systems change. It's actually a comedy. It's 17 minutes long and it sort of describes the system we're in the system that we're going to and you know, how ridiculous this current system is and how practical it is and simple it is to move into this new paradigm. So I'd encourage people to go and watch that. And I think just for, for people to be on a journey to try to figure out their privilege and whether we're a new Canadian or a refugee or we've been wherever we are in the world for a long time, I, we will find without much effort realizing that our privilege is connected to other people's poverty and that will inform our decisions going forward. You know, more practically, if you're a civil servant, 
looking at ways of being an entrepreneur, uh, people who are changing the system from the inside. If you're an investor uh, wanting to get both financial and social impact, uh, looking for opportunities for investment, I think is important. And um, if you're a consumer, there's more and more social enterprises around all the time and shifting more of your spending into the direction of uh, supporting social enterprises. Just this morning, I put an order into a social enterprise in Winnipeg called Diversity Foods. They groceries, you put your order in in the morning, they deliver it to your house in the afternoon. It's shockingly simple. The prices are quite competitive. The convenience is, is amazing. And a lot of the food they have is it is local. So there's yeah, some sustainable sort of benefits there. Um, if we need any carpentry work done at our house, we there are social enterprises in Winnipeg that do that kind of thing. Now, you know, demolition, there's social enterprises like Scope that hire people that are users of mental health services that also do yard work and shoveling and all there's all kinds of different ways to, yeah. Or if you're donating, you know, donating money to systems change to things that are changing systems rather than sort of charitable responses. So I think it's a combination of these things that are critical. Those are so many great ideas and really practical things that we can do to be part of the solution. These are things that so many of us believe in and just knowing that we can support them in our day-to-day lives in these ways is beautiful. I will absolutely have links to encompass.coop in the show notes and, uh, and some of the others that you mentioned as well. Mm -hmm. Sean Loney, you have been so kind to give me so much of your time here. I really, really deeply appreciate it. It's been a wonderful chat. And I have to thank you for all of the incredible work that you've been doing over the last many years. And wish you all the best of luck in your bid for mayor. Thank you. Yeah, well, it's nice to see you again, Christina. And thank you for your time. And you're embedding your love, compassion and kindness into your work as well through your podcasts. And uh, isn't it nice to be to be connected to each other? <laughs> love, compassion and kindness. It's a yeah. beautiful thing to be actively embedding into our lives. Thank you for that mm-hmm. reminder. Much appreciated. Thanks. It's been a delight. Take care, Christina. Thanks. Wasn't that great? Thank you so much, Sean Loney, for sharing your experience and perspectives with us, and also the ways in which we can support social enterprises in our daily lives. Well, that's all for now. If you are interested in exploring these issues further, please head on over to my website. It is Christina Hunter Flourishing. That's Christina with a K. There you can book a call with me to see if you are a fit for the Eco Impact Academy. I would love to chat with you. While you're there, why don't you download some of my free resources like the Sustainable Wellbeing Starter Kit or my Green Home Guide. And feel free to sign up for my newsletter. It is full of resources and inspiration and news from the flourishing community. And if you are looking for a great way to send a gift to a friend with cancer, please check out the unexpectedgiftbox.com. Finally, if you like what you are hearing, please leave me a review wherever you get your podcasts.
I can't wait to talk to you again. Until then, live well green. My flourishing friends, bye for now.